from HerbMentor.com, this is HerbMentor Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to HerbMentor Radio. Uh, this is John Gallagher from Learning Herbs and HerbMentor.com. So my guest today is Stephen Howard Buner. Stephen is an earth poet and the award-winning author of 10 books on nature, indigenous culture, the environment, and herbal medicine. Some of these books include Sacred Plant Medicine, Herbal Antibiotics, Lost Language of Plants, and Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers. Stephen's work has been written about uh, or profiled in just about every herbal publication out there and also even in the New York Times, CNN, and Good Morning America. And he has been invited to teach at many colleges and conferences and even the United Nations. Currently, Stephen is a full-time writer, lecturer, and teacher, and senior researcher for the Foundation for Gaian Studies at GaianStudies.org. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, John. Thanks for having me here. No problem. Thank you for coming. Yeah, <laughs> Great you're welcome. <laughs> so, um, you know, what I want to start with is—is is I was reading that um, you know, from, especially when you're, from your books, that you come from a, a long line of healers. Uh, your great uncle was the Surgeon General of the United States under Eisenhower and Kennedy. And however, you have an ancestor that was an herbalist and midwife uh, in Indiana in the 19th century, and your great grandfather. C.G. Harrod was a doctor who primarily used botanical medicine. So, so your great grandfather was treating people's acute and chronic ailments using herbs. Um, but how was the day-to-day life of people and in their relationship with plants in your great grandfather's day? Did everyone use herbs for day-to-day health care and basic first aid, or did they just leave that all to your great grandfather? Well, they they did a lot. I mean that. The interesting thing about watching how things flow through time is just the little adjustments that people make, the ways that their thinking changes. I mean, there's still herbal presence of the 19th and 18th century in the United States, though most people don't know it. Like, Dr. Pepper was originally an herbal drink, a tonic drink. Root beer was a tonic drink. It was actually often fermented um, so it was alcoholic and a lot of the herbal infusions that they used in the 18th and 19th century actually were fermented which you got better extraction from the the plants because as the yeast produced alcohol they would begin to draw other constituents out of the plants beside the water water pulls different constituents and so you get great patient compliance. So we've just got this shadow of stuff that's left. Coca-Cola, Dr. Pepper, and ginger ale was originally one of the major kind of, it was a fermented beverage. It sold better than any other kind of beer in the United States at the time of the American Revolution. But it's a, an amazing um, herbal concoction for colds and flu and winter and things. So that's still there but the the thing that's interesting is you go further back and i was you know lucky enough to know four of my great grandparents quite well and uh, i was really close to a couple of them and one of them you mentioned cg harrod who was a physician and even though he trained as an allopathic physician which is what doctors really are they're allopaths and mm-hmm. um he didn't train as an eclectic or physiomedicalist he but most of the healing agents that physicians used um before world war ii actually were botanical in nature i mean they used other things too they used mercury and various other things but if you look at the u.s pharmacopoeia from 1911 which is when my great-grandfather began practice um, most of them were herbal medicines. and But the thing that was most different in hanging out with those people, because they'd all been born in the 19th century and their parents were had been born before the Civil War, and being with them, there was a kind of a, a slowness of pace there that went deep inside of them much more than now and and what's more their kind of general relationship to the world around them was very very different they i mean if you think about it, i mean my great-grandparents um they used kerosene lamps and horses and there were no telephones and no radios and no television i mean when my great-grandmother was born that's how it started when she died men had landed on the moon it was this amazing technological transformation but that kind of slowness of going into the woods and picking plants and blackberries and all of that kind of slowness and 
getting most of your food from your own farm and the land. There's something that happens to people when they take the wildness of the world inside of them like that as, as a regular way of life. And they're different, very different than the way we are now. And and I think I was really lucky because there's a kind of a lineage that was passed down that way that very it's very rare to see it in people anymore. So there was real medicine and not just the plant constituents that they were using, but also... Yeah, that, I mean, that's an excellent point. You know, that's the thing that people miss is the difference between medicine and plant constituents. They aren't the same thing. I mean, yeah, sometimes a cold is just a cold, but oftentimes it's not. Diseases have both emotional and spiritual dimensions to them, and yeah, you can just treat the body, but the thing about my great-grandfather that I really learned from him is that he never treated just the body. He treated the people, and I was reading a thing the other day about uh, physicians in Cuba, how they... Um, there's one physician and one nurse for every 2,000 people, according to this um, thing that I was reading. And the, each physician lives in the midst of those 2,000 people, and they meet all of those people. They don't just have a, you know, a, a clinic where the people come, but they visit all of those families in their homes. So they've got like, let's say, 600 homes that they have to go to because they've learned that if you can't see the environment in which the people live, not just the house, but the emotional environment, the way the family is, how can you really work with them as a healer? And my great-grandfather was like that. He made house calls and, you know, as well as having an office behind his home. And there's was a different kind of dynamic working in the healing equation then. And so then how about people then as far as... Um like like when I when I when I'm telling people on my website about um you know using common herbs that even just you know I I have this course that I I give for free on our on my on learning herbs called supermarket herbalism and the idea is that it's a little video thing you know you go and you go and and you basically get um a few um common things you know whether it be lemon or honey and ginger and a, or potato things like that you know um right from the supermarket so you could to show how simple it is, and people just often the comments that I see back to me are like, "Wow, this is a really revolutionary." <laughs> you know, wow, I can't believe this is that simple. So, like, what was the role of 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 what people that everyone like? How much do people know really about these? Like, we go to these workshops, we learn about herbs, but something tells me that the things that we learn in these workshops and what we study in herbal programs was probably common knowledge to most people, not just the doctors. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Goethe, the German poet and botanist, is one of my favorite people. And, you know, he said, it only seems that we've learned so much because we've forgotten even more. You know, it's like we have to keep relearning this stuff. And, and this kind of ties back into some of the stuff you mentioned earlier. Like, so my grandma, my grandfather is this botanic physician, you know, and he's working with all these people. Well, what's interesting is antibiotics really come in after World War II, 1946 or so. They start to be uh, made available to the public. And the allopaths at this time have a monopoly on medicine, so you have to kind of go through them to get all this stuff. And, and you know, they're very excited. It's all new. You know, it's like radios, you know, airplanes, television, antibiotics, you know, and so everybody's real excited. So the people that actually began using all of that stuff were the, the highly educated and the people that were better off financially, the middle class, upper middle class, the rich, and the well-educated. The only people that still used roots and herbs were the ignorant, superstitious, uneducated people in the country, right? So that it got kind of attached to that. Well, it's just an old granny, you know, she's planted by the light of the moon, you know. It's like, what a fool, you know, and everybody's like into this kind of thing. Now what happens is the only people that really are totally, completely, and utterly still into technological medicine, and that's all they want, they tend to be the least educated and the least wealthy, so it's all of the the kind of the yuppies, the upper middle class, the rich, they're going, hey, I want some herbs and I want some, you know, organic medicines, natural stuff. And so we're kind of going back in this cycle. But originally back then, 
everybody knew a little bit of home health care, and that was very common knowledge. I mean, think what would happen now if students in school, instead of being taught, you know, I mean, I don't, do they even learn home ec anymore? I don't know. But when I was in schools, home ec for the girls, shop for the boys. But what if everybody was trained about um, how to do health care on themselves from the herbs that grew around their houses and stuff? I mean, the health care budget would drop, the expense would drop 90% because most of the stuff people can take care of. And that's the way it is in Cuba and the way it was back then. And then if you didn't, couldn't really figure it out if it was beyond your skill, you would go to kind of a community practitioner, which would be a general practitioner of some sort. In 1911, when my grandmother or grandfather began to practice, there were maybe six or eight different kinds of physician that would be commonly found in a community. And, you know, one of the earliest ones I mentioned uh, or that you touched base on was Elizabeth Lusterheide, who was a, a midwife and herbalist who was from Germany and worked in, in, uh, southern indiana and they would go to her and then you just kind of move up the scale of of excellence and specialty um as your need increased and you whatever you had was beyond the the uh, capacity of the people there but like oh my great-grandparents they would um pick dandelions in the spring and have dandelion greens as a part of their diet you know and their daughter, my grandmother, Edna Buner, she just thought that was horribly superstitious. She would never eat anything grown in the yard because it wasn't modern, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, they couldn't believe it when frozen food came out and frozen TV dinners. They were so excited. But now we're back to the whole thing of dandelions in the yard, and and that knowledge is really coming back. So, yeah, the knowledge was really, really widespread, and... It was denigrated considerably by, you know, mechanistic, scientific, technology-oriented doctors who just thought, oh, they're putting dirt and sticks and leaves in their wounds. They're ignorant savages, and we have to, like, educate them. And, but we're really finding out now things that people have known all along, that that older approach that had a great deal to recommend it. And as I work more, I've worked with herbs really intently for over 20 years now, and more and more I go toward the more simple all the time, as you were mentioning, you know, supermarket herbalism. I tend to call it kitchen herbalism a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Which is better. <laughs> it was more of a catch name to get people to download it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Supermarket herbalism. But you kind of like support Safeway. And, uh, you know, I'm just into the... <laughs> You're right. So speak. So speaking of the, you know, you were mentioning before, um, you know, and it all really just starts with using an herb, really having an experience. Um, and and you were mentioned before about um, when you're talking about the uh, the origins of of the um, of the what we call soft drinks now. Uh, and you were mentioning ginger. So what about ginger? Is ginger a great one to kind of explore? Because we don't have to just use this on the recipes in our cooking. You know, we can yeah, use it. Yeah, I mean, ginger is turning out to be one of my major plants. And, you know, when I got into herbalism, I, you know, <laughs> I'll just give you an aside here. Like a lot of people are into preambles, which is what you say before you get to the point. I'm into pre-rambles, you know, so <laughs> I can go all over the place. But, you go ahead all over the place. But, you have my full permission. But I lived in this uh, great place outside of Boulder, Colorado, up in the mountains for 10 years. And, and I must have worked routinely with about 150 plants there was the most astonishing diversity of plant life and the pharmacopoeia that i had there was astonishing and i've never seen anything like it any place else and you know i was so excited and i was learning all these plants and you know usnea which is a tremendously potent antibacterial and tremendous for lung infections and you know and there were local echinaceas that grew in the region and just all kinds of magnificent things, uh, various ginseng family plants like Aurelia nudicollis, one of my favorite plants, wild sarsaparilla it's called. And um, and so I was very much into tinctures and, and everything, and I, I became really fond. I don't like echinacea purpurea much at all, but I'm a real angustifolia freak, and I love that. And so I came up with all these things for, like, colds and flu and, uh, you know, really great cold and flu tincture combination is uh, red root which is which grew up there which is uh, um you know it's just tremendous for clean you know stimulating lymph drainage and um and echinacea which was from the region and then also licorice i used not just the chinese licorice but i 
harvest the local licorice, which has a very similar action, even though it's not as sweet. And you know, it's a very great combination, and I used it for years. But slowly, as partly as going through middle age, it changed in my physiology. But I began working more with other plants and more fresh plants rather than tinctures. And then I came across this whole ginger thing. Uh, I don't know when, maybe seven, eight years ago. And I've been working with it more and more. And so for colds and flu now, I very rarely use echinacea or anything like that. Um, what I do is I get gin, fresh ginger root, which you can get everywhere pretty much all the time. And, mm-hmm. and what I do is I juice it rather than any other way of working with it. And because, like everybody from the 60s, I have a champion juicer, you know, and sitting on the counter, you know, taking up space. And so, you know, I take um, maybe a couple of three pieces about the size of my thumb, and I juice them, and I take that fresh juice, and I add hot water to it and a squeeze of lime and some honey and some cayenne. And I might get... A full-blown flu about every three to five years max. But if I start getting sick and I do that, it'll knock it out almost every time. And it's so much more potently effective than I've found uh, that those other kind of tincture combinations to be. And that whole process has begun to move me more and more into kind of a kitchen herbalism dynamic all the time. And I think... Ginger is an amazing thing, especially for people that have gone through middle age, ginger and cayenne, because they stimulate um, blood circulation so tremendously. But there's something about ginger as an antiviral, an antibacterial, and an immune stimulant. I find that it does, in practice, all those things incredibly well. And I'm, it's actually become one of my, probably my primary herbs that I use for just a considerable number of things. Yeah, it's also just active against uh, staph, right? Yeah, it's really active against a lot of things like that, a lot of uh, bacterial-resistant or antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Another thing it's good for, ginger juice put on um, burns eases the pain of the burn. I mean, it seems counterintuitive. It would do the opposite, but it's actually fairly magnificent for that. So, you know, I'm a big fan of cayenne and, and ginger, and honey and lime, those things in there, those four elements are just tremendously potent medicinals, all of them. Now, with cayenne, um, like it's, it, it, it doesn't take very much, so you're just putting a little in your brew there that you're talking Yeah, about. I might put a sixteenth uh, teaspoon in a 10-ounce cup of hot water with all that stuff, and I'll probably have... Um, a half an ounce to an ounce of ginger juice. And after I, and the neat thing about that is after I juice it, I've got the pulp left over. So I actually take that pulp and put it in a, soak it in water. So I'll get another, um, you know, I'll soak it for four to eight hours in one of mm-hmm. those kind of teacups where it has a ceramic strainer that sits in the top of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'll get another cup of it during the day. So I'll probably drink you know, two to four of those a day if I'm getting sick. If I'm really starting to get sick, I might do six if it's fairly intense. And what's great is there's just no way to take too much. No, there is no way to take too much of that stuff. I mean, it's a, you know, and and after I'd worked with plants for a long, long time, I basically started having kind of a rule of thumb of herbal classification. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just totally not into the, Ayurvedic or TCM orientation, the hot, the cold, and all that stuff. It's, yeah, just, yeah. it's, it's just not where my brain goes. I go right, to right. food herb, medicinal herb, drug herb, and those are kind of the three categories for me. And um, and more and more I, I begin going toward food-grade herbs like this all of the time. And with a food-grade herb, you can't take too much of it in general. I mean, yeah, of course you can. I mean, there is the case of the guy that, uh, what did he read, Back to Eden or one of those things, I forget which mm-hmm. one it was, um, and he started living on carrot juice. And actually, if you live on carrot juice, if you if you juice 80 carrots a day and drink it every day for like three months, you will get cirrhosis of the liver. But, you know, you have to work really hard to hurt yourself with these things. And there's always somebody that, figures out a way to do it, but nevertheless, 
you know, for normal people, it's very, very difficult to take too much of any of these things. You know, and, and I kind of, you were actually a mentor for me in that area of dosage because when I took that class from you on herbal antibiotics and all, you know, you're the you you were the first person to break me out of the mold of read the label of the take three droppers a day of something. You know what I mean? Like you're you're actually like, well, if you're sick. You know, and you're, you're, you say you're, we're talking about echinacea tincture or something. I take a dropper every hour until you're not sick anymore. It's not gonna. Yeah, and that, and that's the thing, you know, it's, it's like Americans are real wimps about dosage because, and, and it's kind of a crazy thing because we've been led to believe that pharmaceuticals are not that dangerous and that herbs are, and it's completely opposite herbs there it's very very difficult to hurt somebody with herbs very easy to hurt somebody with pharmaceuticals like you know most people don't realize that the fourth leading cause of death in the United States is properly prescribed pharmaceutical drugs wow like Heath Ledger died from po- properly prescribed pharmaceuticals okay 1.2 million people per year end up in the hospital are permanently disabled from pharmaceuticals. Over 100,000 of them die. This yeah, was my grandmother a, did too. My yeah, this was a study too, put into the American Medical Journal, the American Medical Association. You know, if it was people dying from herbs, the whole country would be up in arms. But they kind of go, oh, well, you know, it's like, oh, well, we need them, you know. So so you died. You're just a sacrifice for our health. So it, it's collateral a, damage. It, yeah, collateral <laughs> damage. It's, it's, it's a really weird thing. But in when you're looking at, um, and that's part of the thing, we inherit this kind of fear of the wild, and it's very pervasive in the herbal community, not just amongst the general population. And people are so terrified about dosage and stuff. And you see all of the time people that take echinacea for colds and flu, and they don't get well. And and there's reasons for it. When... Um, when you you know echinacea is a general tonic three times a day is fine, but if you're coming down with something like strep throat for which echinacea angustifolia is specific, and I I don't find purpurea as effective, even though the Germans like it and they've done most of their studies on it, I just don't find it as strong. But you take a dropper full of that in your mouth and it stimulates all the saliva and you let it very slowly dribble down the back of your throat and coat that that surface of where the infection is present, I've never seen it not fail for curing a case of strep throat. And for severe colds and flu, I mean, it's neat because you've got a sore throat, but echinacea kind of numbs the throat, so it's perfect, and it's just very effective. But you have to be willing to see. That's one of the things we have such a hard time as Americans and as herbalists learning here to see what's right in front of us. And you have to see the disease. You have to see the person that's right in front of you. And then you have to come up with a dosage regimen specific for that person. And you have to be very focused about it. Like if you've got somebody in an acute condition, you need to have what I think of as acute treatment. I mean, the treatment in a way needs to match the degree of intensity of the condition. So like you get somebody hit by a car and they've got a lot of bleeding or broken bones, you, you, what happens is you move into acute care dynamic. They don't ever really say this, but your treatment is actually, it's at a level of intensity you might can call acute healing. So then you have to match your level of intervention to the level of the disease, but at the same time also have to understand something about kind of the flow of energy dynamics so that you don't, you have to have that balance. You don't want to use a sledgehammer to kill a fly. You have to have that balance and work with it. And it took me, you know, disease to me is not a bad thing. It's we're all, we're all, biodegrading and we're meant to biodegrade and that's nothing is ever going to stop that so that's another thing my great-grandfather really understood is that he wasn't here to cure disease he was here to alleviate suffering because he knew everybody he worked with was going to die sooner or later his job was to help them not to defeat death and that's a whole different deal so in working with people who are ill, 
you have to understand the dynamics of the disease, match your treatment intervention to the level of intensity of the disease, but also you have to ask yourself very important questions every to every time, like, you know, what's the secondary gain? Is there a secondary gain in this? Does the person need to be sick? Or, you know, are they going to recover? Is this a death dynamic that they're dealing with? And, I mean, so few doctors now are trained to facilitate the movement into dying. And as far as I'm concerned, that's one of their primary job descriptions. Mm -hmm. Yet my family is filled with physicians and other than my great-grandfather, not a one of them knows anything about facilitating the movement into death. They just mm. don't. They weren't trained in it. And every generation their training in it became worse. Hmm. Wow. So that's, that's just really fascinating, especially when you were talking about that fundamental thing and being about the fear of the wild that really caught my ear i was like oh yeah that's true you know because and 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 when uh, how do we work at wilderness awareness school for so long i mean that's exactly what i felt like my job description was for so long was to help people not have that fear of the wild by just teaching them that there's nothing to be afraid of you know and then and then by and by just establishing a relationship with the with nature and um, developing your own stories with nature. And, and and that part, you know, that part's really crucial. It's a, you know, this, there's this thing that's been really clear to me, like at a certain number of herbal conferences, like the International or uh, even Brighton Bush had it, or the Green Nations Gathering. It, it's not really present at the Rational Phytotherapy Conferences. That's a whole other deal. That's the chemical constituent neocortex freaks that sit around in their suits. But the other conferences where it's people that somehow, once upon a time, a plant saved their life. And once that happens, nothing is ever the same again. We've eaten the wild redeemer. And there's something that comes inside of our body, this healing that comes from the wildness of the world, and it, and and we're just changed after that. And there's this kind of energy. We become subsumed by what we conquered, in a sense. It's a very interesting thing. And that dynamic is extremely present at more of the, like the international or the, they're at Brighton Bush or the various other conferences like that. That thing itself, so receiving that healing from the wild, it's an amazing Experience. And at the same time, one of the inevitable realizations is in the wildness of the world, there is a certain amount of danger, but we are so disassociated from it that we actually are, as a people, are unable to tell the difference between a dangerous dynamic and a not dangerous dynamic. Like we think plants are dangerous, which in general they aren't. There's very few poisonous plants that, I mean, there are some, yeah, but there's very few of them compared to the plant diversity on the planet. You know, and I love this thing, uh, Joan Halifax, the Buddhist teacher who lives in Santa Fe, said this wonderful thing. She said, whenever rattlesnake, mountain lion, poison ivy is removed from wild ecosystems, the ecosystems immediately begin to degrade. Hmm. Because those things serve one primary function, you know, along the lines she's developing in the thought, and that is they force us to be aware. Yes. And as long as we're aware, we will walk carefully we will have care in those ecosystems. When they're gone, we can become careless and they begin to degrade. So, you know, that's an amazing insight. So that recognition of that there's this danger in the wild, but understanding what it is. I mean, uh, you know, then we get into that nature is red and tooth and claw stuff. And actually nature is mostly cooperative and you've got this thing about everything's meant to biodegrade, everything is meant to be eaten, to become food, to move back into the humus of the world once again. In older cultures, and my great-grandfather perhaps was the last generation that I knew of where that was intrinsic knowledge, 
in older generations, in older cultures, in more indigenous cultures, the recognition that we have a limited time here and that we're destined to biodegrade into the system one way or another, it was an integral, inherent understanding. And therefore, the fear was less because we people grew up understanding that's what would happen. And there was almost a a giveaway of the self back to the system um, and there was new generations that would come to replace us that cycle was accepted so um, that's the thing I find the most to to be able to get to the place to accept that tremendous bounty of healing from the world but at the same time to understand um, that we're only here for a little while and that that kind of awareness that a rattlesnake creates is an essential kind of it creates a kind of acuity of perception about wild landscapes you can't get any other way yeah, and uh, and i love that because that's exactly what we used to, that's exactly what we teach at wilderness awareness school as well as the whole awareness as teacher and some of the things like when people do one of our programs and they want to learn about plants the first thing we do is like okay first you're going to journal all of the poisonous plants and then they quickly quickly realize going through their local field guide that there isn't that many (laughs) and they're really easy to tell because what i get over and over again every time i mention a plant to people is like okay what do the poisonous lookalikes i'm like (laughs) well there's enchanter's death plantain and (laughs) i mean yeah there's hardly one of my favorite things to do about every year or two you know, I get kind of bored, and, uh, and I decide I want something for some, you know, humorous entertainment. And what I do is I get out uh, Jim Duke and Stephen Foster's uh, plant identification, Peterson Field Guide mm-hmm. to Eastern Medicinal Plants, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love, I know both those guys, and I, I think they're great. I love them. But, you know, Peterson was, the whole Paul Press is really into, you know, any possible danger has to be listed. You know, I mean, they, yeah. you know, it's like they had these lawyers standing over their shoulder or some ridiculous thing. <laughs> to say, you know, you look under cherry and there's a big warning sign, you know. <laughs> you know, you know, it's like... The no wonder, can, people. <laughs> you know, uh, cherry contains... Oh, my brain. I'm middle-aged. I lose facts all of the time. Cyanide. You know? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thanks. It's got... Okay. It's got uh, cyanide in it, and basically what that does, there's just enough in it to slightly paralyze respiration. And that's why it works as an antitussive, okay, because it, cal- that's, like, it calms the respiration. It's just like people shooting Botox into their face, though, well, actually, maybe that's a bad metaphor, but in any event, they're using a poison to relax themselves in a certain way. You know, and then there's another one that he's talking about uh, prickly ash, right? And it's got a huge warning on it, you know, and I'm like, what the heck is a warning on prickly ash for? And it goes down and it goes, uh, warning, warning, spines may poke out eyes. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so I met Stephen Foster once, and I said, hey, what the heck is that? That's ridiculous. He goes, it happened once. And I was like, oh, God, you know, come on. You know, it's just like, you know, you get a book on ladders, and then you go, warning, warning, people could fall off. Like, yeah, okay, I guess. Did you guys go to public school or (laughs) what the heck's going on here, you know? So, but, yeah, you're right. There's very, very few poisonous plants, and you can learn those, but it's like even the poisonous plants – most of them were used as medicine, and you know it really comes down to the dosage and um, mm-hmm. understanding that. And, and and there's a lot of like fearful stuff in most herbal books. And I've been guilty when I knew less of spreading some of that scurrilous information. I mean, even Michael Moore, who is one of the most knowledgeable herbalists right. in the United States, in his book on uh, plants of the Rocky Mountain region. He writes a thing about uh, Bainberry in there, Red Cohosh, where he says, if you take it, um, it can damage the intestinal mucosa, so you can't take it internally. And, you know, he's admitted, he's never corrected the text, but he's admitted later, because that's not true. You can use Red Cohosh interchangeably with Black Cohosh dealing with muscle problems, and it's a great internal herb. The eclectics used it. There's no problem. And... You know, there's a lot of stuff about elder root or elder bark or elder leaves being dangerous. And you well, know, well, okay, you got you got to set this straight with me about the elder, like because I'm in the northwest. You know, where we have the red berried elder. 
Mm-hmm. And, and and I only all I can go in in the with the red one is what's in the book because I don't want to try it. <laughs> and so they're always but, but like, well, you, I heard the seeds are poisonous, and it's like, well, what's true about? What can I yeah, say well, the about thing, that? The thing that I got into a long time ago yeah. is I began, you know, actually trying some of these things to actually see what would happen. And so mm-hmm. it turns out the leaves of the elder. They're a fairly reliable nerving, similar to pasque flower. They've got their own kind of dynamics to them, but they're really quite nice. And, and you know, I haven't actually worked much with the root or the bark, but I found that the leaves were fine, so that the warning didn't make sense. And then there's all these warnings about poke, right? So people start to take, you know, people take this stuff, and then they get panicked, and then, you know, they bring on the symptoms. But poke is not nearly as dangerous of an herb as they say and it's got you've got a lot of dosage range there that most people don't know about because they're into kind of this american you know tiny dose thing but poke is a it's extremely powerful lymph stimulant and it's when somebody's lymph system is just laying there and it won't do anything red root doesn't touch it you give them some poke for a while and it kicks it in the ass and really gets it going and and I pretty much felt if I was going to give herbs to other people, I needed to take them myself to a point of um, symptomology to where I would start to get a side effect so I could find out what the herb actually did before I start giving it to people. And, you know, that I did kind of provings on most of the plants I used. And so I could see what the range was like for me. And it's not... Uh, an absolutely guaranteed thing, like some plants, like skull cap. I've drank, a, 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 you know, an ounce of that at a time. It does nothing for me. It just doesn't. It has no effect. So I can't really suggest it to people. But nevertheless, that's the way you start finding out about these things. Like, uh, you know, it took me a long time to understand that skunk cabbage, Western skunk cabbage, is a psych- is a mildly psychotropic plant. If you grind the herb in a Vitamix and then you take the top off and you've got that fine flowery powder coming off the top of the Vitamix and you breathe that in, it actually completely relaxes you. You go into kind of this, you become aware about three minutes later you've been standing there and you haven't moved and it, <laughs> it, it's so completely relaxing but nobody had actually talked about this and it took me, I had to go back to some texts from the 19th century to find any mention of it but you know, to me, when you're working as an herbalist, it's like in, immersing yourself in that world. And uh, I remember another story. Cause the very first, um, it was really humorous, the very first time I went out to dinner with herbalists was 1991. I was a speaker at the American Herbalist Guild second annual conference and uh, went out to dinner with uh, uh, Christopher Hobbs and Mark Blumenthal and uh, David Winston and Feather Jones and one or two other people. And we're sitting there, and then uh, everybody's talking, and uh, everybody's always gossip about each other. And you know, pretty soon I hear this, somebody goes, well, you know, I really respect Susan Weed, but, and then they fill in all this stuff. And then another person goes, yeah, she's really knowledgeable, except, and then they say all this stuff. Well, it turns out one of the things that really set them off is that in the spring, Susan would add um, uh, poison hemlock to salads, the, the new shoots. She would eat them in the spring. And then they're all freaked out about this, right? And actually, water hemlock is more dangerous than poison hemlock, and I think the names are messed up. But anyway, so... So then I read a story a couple of years later about this professor who'd gone out um, harvesting plants, edible plants, in a college class with his class, and one of the students had mixed in some uh, poison hemlock with the stuff and had actually eaten it. But nobody could figure out, none of the students could actually figure out who had, eat, who had eaten it, you know, and who had actually picked it. And only one of the students had actually eaten it. But two of the students went into classic um, poison hemlock poisoning symptoms, and they went cyanotic. They couldn't get breathing. They had to take them to the hospital. But nevertheless, only one of them had eaten it. The other one, it was fear. Mm. So these professors, they thought that was really intriguing. And they thought, well, I wonder how much of that stuff you can really eat. So they went and picked a bunch more, and they began eating it, right? And they said, you know, there's no toxic effects from, you know, this one professor had eaten almost a whole stalk of the 
uh, of one of the leaves that came out and eaten the whole thing. He said, "There's, it's a fine food. There's nothing wrong with it. That's just what the books say. It's more the root. And if little children, because it's a hollow stem, if they're if they pick it and they're using it as a blowgun or something, and they get the juice because of their body weight size, and they're, they tend to blow from the the end more down near the root, it's more poisonous that way. So, as time went on, I began to find that there's a lot of the knowledge that has been put in books was from because one person had a weird reaction or they were overly cautious or something, but they're much less poisonous than we're led to believe, actually. And I just have not found it to be the reverse of that in all these years. Wow. <laughs> that's that's very very interesting. Wow, I never never really yeah because when I'm te- you know I you know when you're teaching you just all I can do is from the book because I haven't actually done those kinds of right and that's the thing is that we kind of pass on this information about things but you know it's um, you know weed is kind of like a racial epithet a plant you know applied to the plant world and there's a certain amount of bad press plants get that I'm not really sure that they deserve I I think a lot of it comes down to fear of the wild more than the genuine knowledge of the plant world itself. Because I always wonder why Michael Moore has this whole thing about all these ways of using nightshade, right. bitter sweet nightshade, in one of the books, and and then you know, and all the other ones. Everyone says, you know, oh, don't eat the nightshade, you know? and that's just terrible. Bitter sweet nightshade is an extremely good plant. I've used it many times, and it's or, there. You know, I mean, I, yeah, I guess if you drank a whole cup of a a really strong decoction it might make you sick I, i've never done that but i've used the plant many times it's an excellent the nightshade family itself is an excellent family and it's you know as herbalists we've lost a lot of our traditional basis because of these fears that have been put in like okay one of the things that's very difficult for us to do as herbalists is to um find painkillers because um, the painkiller market has been sewed up by the allopaths, you know, and their drug dealer, you know, uh, pharmacology friends. So the mm-hmm. pharmaceutical company. So, but the eclectics were really tremendously brilliant. And if you start going back through like King's American Dispensatory or the different eclectic materia medica, you start to find some extremely potent painkillers that are not narcotic in, um, uh, like morphine or opium or things like that. So, they used to use um, henbane for surgical, um, as an anesthetic for surgeries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that fascinates me. And I've used another one that they would use for tremendously good pain relief is um, Indian pipe, which you would really? use the root. And I've, you know, that grows up in your region. And I had a guy once that had an abscess tooth and... I gave him Indian pipe, and he would take a tablespoon of the tincture, and he said, it's really amazing. He said, uh, uh, okay, I'd keep the Indian pipe with me, and I'd have this, you know, because, you know, an abscess tooth, it comes on just like that. It's like a wang. It just hits this incredible pain. And he said, I'd take a tablespoon of the tincture, and then um, the pain would still be there, but it would be like there was a sheet of glass between me and it. I could see it on the other side of the glass, but I just didn't feel it. And so I slowly started to learn these different um, painkiller dynamics that they used back then when they found morphine or the various um, opiates to be not usable. And that was before the introduction of opiate, you know, analogs. And there's some really good stuff in our pharmacopoeia that we just don't work with anymore. Well, that, that that's very. I mean, what you're saying for the a stronger type of painkiller, but what about um, the effectiveness for just your know, mild painkiller, like for headaches and stuff? I mean, anything in the anything in the Willow family, or? Well, the thing is, I've never actually had a lot of success. Um, there is some interesting stuff I'm doing about with Willow now that's really cool. I'll tell you in just a second. But um, for headaches, you know, Rosita Arvigo, who's an amazing herbalist who lives in Belize and everybody thinks because of her name you know she's like from Belize but she's actually from Chicago so you know she has an accent kind of like this you know and she talks hey let's take some herbs huh but she works in this tribe down there and she actually works with headaches a lot using 
depending on the kind of headache it is. And it works in this tribe down there. And she actually works with headaches a lot using, depending on the kind of headache it is, and it's a whole long story, but she will either wrap a cold towel around your head and put your feet in hot water or vice versa. And by doing that, she could get rid of most headaches and because aspirin just wasn't available down there. And she said it was an uh-huh. extremely effective approach in terms of, you know, like dealing with headaches and stuff like that. Um, I'm a kind of an ibuprofen guy myself. But <laughs> and I've tried willow, and I just don't like the taste of um, the salicylates in right. like willow or aspen bark. Aspen bark Hot is one word. of my favorite ones, but... The thing I've been doing with it, though, um, I've been really curious about anti-inflammatories um, for a long time, like corticosteroids that they use as creams topically for as an anti-inflammatory. Uh-huh. And then this uh, doctor friend of mine said, well, you know, you can just crush up aspirin and make a paste and put it on there because it's an anti-inflammatory. It's like when I realized that hops actually does something in beer, you know, when it's in there because it's the most powerful estrogenic plant practically on the planet. Guys drinking beer, it lowers their testosterone levels. But I had my beer-making stuff in one box and my herb stuff in another, and I never mixed the knowledge. So we all know aspirin is an anti-inflammatory, but we think of it as an internal anti-inflammatory for headaches or for, you know, pain or, you know, swollen muscles or something. But then that whole concept of using it topically, then I went, well, you know, aspen and willow bark, that's what this stuff was originally made from. You got birch, you got aspen, you got willow as three primary kind of solicit-containing well, plants. What do you do to make it as effective as an aspirin? Like, I can have a headache and take an aspirin and I'm fine, but how how do I translate that to the amount of willow decoction I have to make? or cotton Well, that, that's a whole other thing. See, I tend to use other plants for, if mm-hmm. I have a headache like that, I'll, I'll tend to use pasque flower and American wood betony, which is a particularis mm-hmm. species. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the lousewort rather than the elephant head is my favorite because of the taste. I prefer lousewort. Um, better. You mix pasque flower, for instance, our coral root is another extremely good one. Um, and wood betony, the American wood betony is a muscle relaxant and it's absolutely phenomenal. And if you drink enough of it, you basically, all of your muscles unwind like rubber bands and you lay there and you can't do anything, but you feel great. Okay, so there's that. Pasque flower is a central nervous system relaxant. Um, and uh, coral root is kind of almost a blend of the two. So those are the kind of things I tend to use for headache dynamics. And I'm, I will tend to use, uh, and motherwort is another one. So like a, I might take a half an ounce to an ounce of a motherwort American wood betony combination and blend it half and half. And I find those exceptionally effective. But in terms of willow bark for headaches, I, I just don't like the taste, so I can't really take it. Um, makes me gag. And uh, yeah. uh, so <laughs> what I began to do with that stuff, though, because if aspirin will work as a topical anti-inflammatory, then these things will too. So you take a crock pot and you make a really strong uh, decoction at a really light boil of uh of willow bark or aspen or whatever you're using, then you put that decoction in the crock pot and you cook it really slow till it cooks down into a sludge, which it'll do quite nicely after a few days. Mm. And then you apply that topically as an anti-inflammatory and it just works great. Mm. But it's like this kind of, it was this obvious inherent knowledge in herbal practice. Nevertheless, in 20 years, I've never heard anybody talk about it, but we should have been. It's so anything kind of, where this has a hot hot inflamed condition on the outside. Right, and there's certain things that you'll get, like where you'll get this inflammation and you want to reduce it, and the typical response is to prescribe corticosteroids topically from an allopathic physician, But and we haven't really had anti-inflammatory options that I thought were very potent that we could use, and that's That's kind of a new one for me. Another one, another new thing for me that I've gotten into in the last few years, which is a little bit older, is, you know, phytoestrogens. Everybody knows about phytoestrogens, whether it's soy or whether it's licorice or black cohosh, whatever it is. But I've never heard anybody say the word phytoandrogen. Okay, if there's plants that contain molecularly identical hormones to female 
steroid hormones. There's got to be plants that contain analogs or, or molecular. They've got to, there's got to be plants with testosterone in them because there's plants with estradiol. So, you know, and estradiol and all of these things. So <laughs> then it turns out, yeah, as a matter of fact, there are a lot of plants with testosterone in them, exactly the same testosterone in our body as in our bodies. And pine pollen is incredibly high in those. And the Latin for pine is pinus, which in Germany is pronounced penis, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. And nevertheless, you know, it's so funny how we'll go year after year after year, but the obvious question as herbalists continually escapes us. And that, and I do that all the time. And, you know, it's just this constant adventure of learning to just see the obvious thing. And in a lot of ways, that's, that's really what plant medicine is about. And, so this whole concept of, of topical anti-inflammatories. And then, you know, the next thing, that's kind of a new thing for me, but then to get to an interior anti-inflammatory that would have the same kind of effects as corticosteroids taken internally, you know, for inflammatory conditions. And we're just kind of locked into the willow decoction thing. And, you know, there's a lot more sophistication available to us than just that. Um. And 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 what about you know speaking of topically um, and informational is like people sometimes talk about topically uses of of, of honey because we were talking about the kitchen herbalist and stuff. Oh yeah, honey is a major one for me, and um, you know I learned about there's a couple of neat herbs I learned about from Hispanic herbalists, and honey's one of them. Uh, the other one, which is just an aside, is uh, that actually I don't remember the Latin on this plant. It's uh, green American green gentian. Uh, they call it Cebadilla down here. And uh, talking about a lack of fear of the wild, the people down here, they may go to an herbalist or a doctor or a curandera. Uh, they don't really have a thing about it. If they've got cancer, they just kind of go to whichever one feels right. And the local curanderas and herbalists down here use... Uh, a topical preparation of Cebadilla on skin cancers. They mix it, they powder the root about like flour and then mix it with Vaseline. The Hispanic herbalists are really into Vaseline. They're like, hey, you know, we don't want any of this organic stuff. Give us some good petroleum gel, you know. And they mix it up till it's a real thick paste and they put it on the the skin tumor, the skin cancer, cover it for 72 hours, and the thing just falls off. They go, yeah, it came out of the skin, kind of like, you know, it had all these tentacles in there. It's really interesting, and I've used it four or five times with people with small skin cancers, and it just cleans, you know, the, the thing just falls out. It, you know, it's and and the co- was the common name on that one again? Green, green gentian, G-E-N-T-I-A-N. I used to, I'm not, I'm Latin challenged. I, I know in vino veritas, you know, but that's about, that's about it. So... <laughs> But anyway, so, um, but honey, yeah, that's another one I learned from these guys. And uh, they use it in Mexico a lot for um, treating um, abscesses in the buttocks, for instance, that go all the way to the bone, are with severe burns. And they, you know, like third-degree burns, they put this stuff on there, and you'll get a complete healing of the thing with no loss of muscle mass and almost no scarring, sometimes no scarring at all. Okay, I thought this is really intriguing, you know, and it turns out honey is, and actually even some allopathic physicians, some of the hospitals, when they're doing transplants, they actually will put corneas in a sugar solution because when you have sugar at that concentration, it's antibacterial. Honey is also very high in hydrogen peroxide, and plus if you're using, which you should only use, a wild flower honey, never a clover honey or alfalfa honey, that's, that stuff is, uh, it's not good, but the, the wild, raw, unprocessed honey and... Because of pesticides? You know, yeah, pesticides and all of the different pharmaceutical products that are put on those okay. crops um, right. uh, to grow them, but I, uh, you know, another thing I do is that, that I every, you know, few years I buy this, uh, some kind of interesting house that I Remodel. I've been doing this for like 30 years, you know, like really insane. But I was working, um, we're working on a 4,000 square foot adobe house down here now with a big warehouse, you know, and um, I was working on this cab and I was using a nail gun and the nail gun, every so often a nail gun, because um, it's an uh, air compressor, it'll, it'll double shoot and 
this time a double shot. The first nail went in, the second nail hit the top of the first nail and then ricocheted off and it actually went through the joint on my left pointer finger and nailed it to a adjoining two by four, which was kind of intense. So I'm standing there holding it nailed to this, you know, I felt like Jesus for a minute, you know, just a minute. And then uh so I had to get a, a hammer and pull the nail out. <laughs> It's one of these great stories. Anyway, so what I did was, you know, um, everybody's like, oh, you better go to the doctor. I said, I don't think so. I've been to those guys before. So what I did was I put, um, I got an antibacterial tincture that I use. It's a gum kind of thing. It's got a lot of this potent stuff in it. But anyway, I poured that over the nail, just pulled it right out of the finger, and then I wrapped it, I bandaged it with honey. Okay, and the thing just healed up fine. I mean, I've got complete movement and mobility back. gets a little stiff in cold weather, but there was no infection, nothing. And I've had that several times where I've got some sort of a a wound that starts to get a little messy and it's kind of deep. And and the honey thing, the fascinating thing about it is there's no infection. And what you also get is that the the skin regenerates perfectly. There's no scarring. There's virtually no way to even see where that nail went through there. So honey is one of the most amazing things that everybody's got in their kitchen, and it's just, you know, it's great. Is there a one other amazing kitchen thing that's in there that people should... Use well, another we one talked is about honey on our websites for cops and stuff, so everyone knows about yeah. that. But well, yeah, that's great. Thanks for just saying yeah, that. Wound healing, it's, it's one of the most amazing wound healing herbs yeah. that there is, wound healing substances. Another one is uh, Rosita Arvigo uses oregano a lot, and she's a huge fan of it. And I've just messed around with it a little bit. I don't have nearly her background, but what she does is that um, – she makes a really strong decoction of oregano, just your regular old cooking oregano. And so if people get like a severe burn from uh, uh, scalding from water or steam or something like that, she washes them with a cold infusion of their cold decoction of, of uh, oregano and and says that the whole thing, it just completely heals. It's the most astonishing thing the, that she's ever seen. So that's, I've kind of... Luckily, I haven't been burned that way yet, and hopefully I never will be. But those are kind of three of the major ones, the, the cayenne, the, the ginger, the echinacea, the uh, honey, and the, the oregano are three of the real good ones, I think. I recommend that uh, everyone uh, pick up Stephen's pick all of Stephen's books, but uh, I think. But um, I think I've got most of them. But uh, <laughs> Herbal Antibiotics has... Uh, a lot of these ones we've been talking about, and and uh, even some great immune system boosting uh, and supporting recipes during this time of year. I think I even yeah. posted one with a little book cover of herbal uh, herbal antibiotics oh, on learning herbs. I have one of the immune ones on there. Yeah, and see another herb that I've really gotten into. It's not a kitchen herb. It's uh, that I talk about in that book is Cryptolepis sanguinolenta, and that's a, an herb from Africa, primarily Ghana. And, um, you know, I'd heard about it is because of antibiotic-resistant malaria, and they'd done some work with it over there, and it's no side effects, and, it, you know, it's very effective for antibiotic-resistant malaria, but it's also incredibly good for staph and strep infections. So I've been watching um, resistant staph moving in out of the hospitals and into the community over the last 20 years at its, you know, inevitable pace. And I get people coming to me now three, four times a year, and it used to be never. And uh, um, they've got a systemic resistant staph that antibiotics won't touch, which, you know, they're going to going to get amputations or i mean they're just basically there's the doctors gay well let's just watch it for a while the people are like are you insane mm. but cryptolepis sanguinolenta is a tincture i've never had it fail for systemic staph that's antibiotic resistant and, and one of the neat things about if you're looking at a systemic infection you know i hear a lot of people they say well how about garlic or how about this stuff but the thing is when you've got a systemic infection, mm-hmm. the one thing that you've got to do to get rid of it, you have to have an herb that's going to be carried throughout the entire body in the bloodstream that will become pervasive in the blood. And 
that's one of the neat thing about malarial herbs, not the malarial herbs used for just fever or chills, but the ones that actually treat the parasite itself. Mm-hmm. When you get an herb that's disseminated throughout the body through the bloodstream where it really has a high presence in the blood, you get a perfect systemic um, translation of the herb throughout the body. And cryptolepis, so if you start looking at traditional malarial herbs, you get the best antibacterial systemics you can get. And and cryptolepis is an absolutely amazing herb. And um, it's and I keep trying to get some of the larger herb companies to start carrying it. I just can't get them to to move into it, but uh, Kate Gilday at Woodland Essence in New York State, she carries it, and um, it's just, it's, it's really remarkable for uh, things like Babesia and and systemic infections like that. It's a great herb. And and it's great in, in, in herbal antibiotics as well. Um, you know, with the hepatitis C in the liver book, where you kind of go into real um, simple layman's terms on describing bacteria as well as viruses in the other book and that's really really powerful if you're getting into learning about herbs is you know you read about all these herbs and they're good for this this and this but you kind of have to have a basic understanding too of what those other things are and it has these it just says it so nice and simply you know yeah, thanks really john great. thanks it's really great so yeah you should write a book on uh on kitchen herbalism i mean tracing, <laughs> tracing a lot of your people have already roots. done that actually oh, i'm most sure I'm yeah, but you write a different in, one. <laughs> yeah, that's right, I would. I'm actually, you know, playing around now with a book on uh, treatment of cancer because there's not really a good um, definitive text on that, and I, I really think there should be. So that's, and, and you're probably the only person that I've come across that would t- to tackle something like that. <laughs> I well, I mean, it's, there's so many decent, you know, and I studied with um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and a lot of people early on in my career, and I... You know, it would just be really nice to have a definitive text. And there's a – Michael Murray's got a decent one. Donnie Yance has one, but it's not nearly as exhaust- – I mean, it just needs to be more in-depth and exhaustive. And those are kind of the two major ones, and they're just um, – but there's so many good treatments for cancer, different kinds of cancer that are really reliable – but there's no real definitive text either discussing what cancer is and how to approach it and actually how to think like it so that you know how to approach it herbally. So that's mm. kind of the most intriguing thing for me now. I just did one on Lyme a couple of years ago, and that kind of whet my appetite for something that's complex, uh, really. Yeah, yeah, I'm from the East Coast, so I think I, I, I did have that happen to me once, and before I began this herbal journey, I... Where is it, New Jersey a place where they actually acknowledge Lyme disease exists? Right. Um, you know, right. took an, an antibiotic course for it before I knew, you know. And antibiotics you know, are actually great for Lyme in about 60% of the cases, but for about 40% of the people, they don't work. And, you know, one of the things that's also real intriguing is, um, in general, um, invasive plants tend that are moving into ecosystems where Lyme is endemic tend to be specific for Lyme. So, you know, that's a really kind of intriguing ecosystem phenomenon that I just love. I have a patient here who uh, who got it here in western Washington, though the doctor refuses to admit or say, you know, that that's true because it's not here. But all Oh, that's time. ridiculous. It's all up, the you know, from San Francisco on the way all the way up. Uh, Northern California yeah. is endemic, and... Yeah. There's a huge population of people in the Seattle area and up in Vancouver that have Lyme. I mean, it's real a bad problem there. Not as bad as the East Coast or around Wisconsin, but it's still significant. So, yeah, I mean, I see that stuff all the time where doctors and do it's that. And it's, it's hard to get the people to, to acknowledge or know what it is because there's not yeah. the same education. You don't never hear about it, you know. Well, doctors aren't educated. They're schooled. There's a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of You're our right. problems as Americans. We can't tell the difference between education and schooling. You know, <laughs> exactly. Like your uh, on your website, you say uh, you went to co- you went to college in the sixties, like the sixties, where you yeah, I majored in the sixties. <laughs> you yeah. majored in the sixties. Yeah, well, it was interesting, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> unlike school. Exactly. Oh, guys, you know, we could probably uh, talk forever, but we got to, I guess, stop at some point. But, you know, I'd like to have you back on sometime and kind of talk a bit about um, sacred plant medicine and and um, what you talk, you know, because when you taught in the workshop, you know, you, you didn't, 
it was, it was great about your teaching style was stories, you know, and you, and you teach these stories, and it, you just really, it was really effective and really got in there because, yeah, you know, you have these engaging stories, and, 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 and I got it, you know, what you were talking about through you teaching through these stories, and I don't know if I would have gotten it just, you know, say, this is what circular plant medicine is, and so, I mean, got to, just to hear some of your stories would be great, and I was glad that you published some of those stories in um, Lost Language of Plants. Thanks. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's the story about the... It's the story. <laughs> oh, I remember that one. I love that one. <laughs> oh, thanks. thanks it would so be we'll, great we'll... to be back on. That would be wonderful. Thanks. And and uh, just just to recap, too, everybody, uh, you can go to guyandstudies.org. But probably the easiest thing to do is just Google Stephen Buhner with a P-H, Stephen, <laughs> B-U-H-N-E-R. And uh, then you can get all your, your sites as well as... Uh, uh, you know, a good list of all your books in one neat spot, like on Amazon. Again, all of you. Yeah. There's even Antibioticos Naturales on there, which is... Which there is. is. Actually, my books have been translated into 14 languages, which is really Jeez. nice. Even wow. uh, Russian, Herbal Antibiotics have been translated into Russian, Bulgarian, wow. you know, Romanian. I, mean, it's I wonder how amazing. you say it in Russian. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's written in the Cyrillic alphabet, so I have no idea. My name is in the Cyrillic alphabet. I didn't know it was me. <laughs> Hard time recognizing myself in Cyrillic. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> okay. So, oh gosh, so this been it's been a lot of fun. So thank, thanks so much, and we'll 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 get you back on here someday soon. Great. Thanks, John. HerbMentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including HerbMentor News, Home Remedy Secrets, and Supermarket Herbalism. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and our board game Wildcraft. HerbMentor Radio, copyright LearningHerbs.com, all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.